Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello there, all you fans of the Eastern Border Podcast. If you've been enjoying this show, chances are you're the kind of history buff who's interested in not just what's happened in the past, but also why. The role of ideas and beliefs in history is huge, isn't it? You can't tell the story of the Soviet Union without it. In fact, one of the many things that makes the Cold War so fascinating is that both sides had a whole body of ideas influencing what their people and their governments did, how they saw the world and their place in it. If this sort of thing is your cup of tea, then be sure to check out Inward Empire, a podcast about this exact link between ideas and actions in American history. I haven't touched the Cold War yet, but rest assured I'll get there one of these days. And in the meantime, you can start with Sword of the Wilderness, a story about colonization, identity, and war. Available through the iTunes store or at inwardempirepodcast.podomatic.com. Greetings, comrades. Sorry for the inconvenience and this episode being a bit late. I hope you'll understand that, you know, getting married is quite a big deal, and I just didn't have the time or resources to devote to this show at this moment, at the early September. And this is going to be a special episode because of this, really. For one, this episode shall contain the stories that we wanted to tell in other episodes but just didn't make it, the stories that are just so one-off that... It was hard to get them in. None of the weird material. Most of it, it's about art. And the other part is going to be about some interesting misconceptions and an interesting article that we read. I hope you understand that this compilation is not the default and that we'll continue on making better and proper episodes, but this was a nice time, better than any other time, to produce such a weird, bit weird and strange episode. For starters, as you remember, the Soviet Union tried to look good internationally. They really needed this bazaars and, and all the fancy stuff on the outside. And they did that by showing that they, in air quotes, take care of the national republics that constituted the USSR. So, they promoted art. A lot of the art was just pure propaganda, created only to glorify the regime. But there was some real art too. Art that managed to break through the bounds of communism and actually managed to achieve something. 
So, for the first part of this show, we will be talking about art, artists, and alcohol. And everything surrounding it, because these three things are inseparable, so to speak. Now, I've gotten a lot of these mails from um, different artists here, and my dad, so... These are just all collected stories, you know, like in the early episodes. Even though there were only like two means of producing art. Either producing propaganda or trying to make something real. We can talk about three types of artists themselves. And with artists I obviously also mean musicians and writers and etc. The first kind, the least represented one, but the mostly loved by the party were the ideologically devout communists. Those who actually believed, and thus made their works, that glorified the Soviet Union, Lenin and Marx, even without any outside pressure, feeling quite comfortable in in the system. Of these I have to mention, at least from my country, writer Janis Niedra, and another writer, Janis Grieva. And Janis Grieva was so fanatical that he actually went to Spain during their civil war to fight for the Republican side against Franco. And also, there was this poet, Valdis Lux, who is mostly well-known for his poems about Lenin. There was also the second kind. Those who produced propaganda, also, but did so only because of materialistic, prudent reasons, knowing that what they were making has nothing to do with art. Of these we have to mention poet Janis Sudramkalds who previously was a follower of Oscar Wilde's aesthetics, but under the Soviets, He became known for spewing out an insane amount of Stalin-glorifying poems, in contrast to Valdis Lux, who basically concentrated on Lenin. There was also a writer, Vilis Latis, who actually managed to become the Minister of Culture in the Latvian SSR. Basically, this guy reworked everything he had written before the USSR annexed us. And especially from his novel, Zeta Family, in the original of which the father of the protagonist is murdered by the KGB. But he changed it for the Soviets, and in the changed edition, he was murdered by the Whites, the royalists of the Soviet Civil War. And there are many cases of these endings being changed, or the whole theme of the book being changed, because people needed to eat something, people needed to live through things, and uh, a lot of artists did this. They had to produce this propaganda even though they knew it had almost zero artistic value. The third kind of artists were those who tried to produce quality art. And, of course, they also had to create some propaganda, but they made these propaganda works only insofar as was absolutely demanded. I mean, otherwise, nobody would even bother publishing them or giving them any exhibitions. Of these, we have to mention poet Oyar Svatsetis and the painter Gemma Skulme. Yeah, and um, basically, everyone who worked in a professional theater over here. Everyone, really. Theater folks were the very radical and anti-communist guys out there. Oh, and one more thing. The third type of artists had completely perfected the art of so-called Aesop's language, or writing between the lines. You see, writing something, or painting something, or producing something that, taken as face value has one meaning, but it's actually meant to represent something completely different. Like uh, that poem about willow trees mentioned in an earlier episode about Gorby. Or 
another poet, Wisma Belshevitsa, wrote a poetry book, Chronicles of Livonian Henry. We mentioned the original Chronicles in the Northern Crusade episode, but um, this is somewhat unrelated. She made a set of poems about that time period. She wrote about the traitor collaborationists who, quote, worked with the crusading forces, but the way that it was presented made it very obvious that she was criticizing those who didn't resist the Soviets and especially the artists of the first two kinds. This theme of collaborationism was a popular one in general, by the way, because the third kind of artists just couldn't stand the first two. Obviously, artists who had to produce this crap propaganda either for money or because they just, you know, had to to get published, they had a lot of bad feelings, they had a lot of discomfort, it was breaking them breaking them down mentally, it was destroying them from the inside, and uh, all this sadness, all of this was, yeah, it was then drowned in booze, like my reports say. Now, some stronger kind of people managed to not to break down from alcohol, but but there were a lot of Soviet artists who just couldn't bear it. There were a lot of those who drunk themselves down completely, just like the athletes did in our sports episode. But with the artists, it was especially tragic. For one, the aforementioned Oyar Svatsit, who died just after turning 50, and whose wife had dragged him out of every pub in Riga at least once a week. But mostly, hardcore alcoholism struck theaters. As those people couldn't stand communism. There were cases where shows were put off because of the lead actor either sleeping at home and just being drunk, or in one reported case where actor Rudolf Splepis was found falling asleep in the theater bathroom in his own vomit and just would not be able to go and play in another show about life of Lenin. Now, one of the more crazier ca- cases of uh, alcoholism in Latvian theater history was also one of the most talented people of these parts. A certain actor named Uldis Pucits. He was extremely great both in theater arts and in his ability to handle booze. That meant he had a lot of lead roles and a huge tendency to just go missing for a month or so when he started drinking. He would just leave the house with a box of vodka and go out and hang out with bums and criminal elements in abandoned houses. And he would also just hang with various random people and he would just get completely lost for a month, drinking all the time. But you see, the theater he was working in, a Riga Youth Theater, which at that time made shows for a young adult audience mostly, and uh, now they have shifted to more of the, one of the more artsy theaters, the Riga New Theater. These guys, in the early 80s, had to go to perform as guests in Moscow, which was a super huge deal in any Soviet theater. Uh, I know this story because my dad uh, told me this one as he was personally involved. But we'll get to that. Basically, in a week, until the show started, Pulsaitis decided that it's time to get drunk once again. And he just couldn't be stopped, because of all the massive alcohol problems going out there. Now, to explain some things, Pulsaitis had some stomach problems. That means he just couldn't drink vodka straight up. So what he did was, he took these tea glasses of vodka... The Granjonkas, the famous ones, 200 milliliters, the standard cup sized, the glasses with the kind of the square edges, and he got another glass and filled it with milk. So he would just drink out a Granjonka and then he would drink milk on it, which is a bit disgusting, but hey, 
you can't tell the man to just not drink, can you? Otherwise, it doesn't work that way. So he would just drink these, and as soon as the director of the theater found out that Pultitis was again drinking, he knew that he just couldn't stop his lead actor from drinking, actually, so he assigned people in teams, like six people in three teams, to drink with them. So my dad was assigned on one of those teams, and he managed to last a day and a half. Because oldest Pultitis drank, I don't know, like a horse, possibly. And basically the first team was where my dad was, was just, you know, theater workers, the guys who move around props and help with everything in the theater. Second team was the same, and the third team was the vice director of the theater with his aide. And after a while, you know, after these days pass, everyone's just wasted and drunk with Mr. Pootsie. But this vice director, he apparently at the end called the theater and told them, Great success! Pootsie has fallen asleep, it's amazing! This Pootsie, this guy, was literally, later, well, while he was still asleep, carried to the train and was taken care of. And the shows managed to happen, and basically when he woke up, uh, two of our lead actresses, Vera Singievska, and the other one whose name I really can't remember, were just there giving him kefir and other refreshments. And he was strictly kept off of alcohol during the whole show. But it just shows how much people really <laughs> enjoyed their booze in the theater. As you can see, after such successes, the fact that people played their roles while being tipsy or even a bit wasted, yeah, that was quite normal. And thankfully, I know quite a lot of people who've worked in theater for all their lives, and they've sent their stories to me. And yeah, I just didn't know where to put them. So here's some um, more booze-infused theater stories, which are just too amazing to pass, you know. And uh, this one's from Opera. Dad worked there for 20 years, playing bass. So this one's also from him. Tchaikovsky's Yevgeny Onegin. The scene of a duel with Onegin and Lensky. I won't go into details about how the play works out and how the opera works, but if you haven't checked it, Tchaikovsky is a genius opera writer and you should really check them out. He's one of the greatest Russian grands when it comes to culture. Basically, Onegin is played by an actor, Polyakov. And this actor, he's thinking that the shooting sound for when Onegin fires his friend in this duel is, you know, a bit too quiet. So, he's acquired a starting pistol. The one that uses sports competitions where you run 100 meters or something. And he's hiding it in his left hand behind his back. You know, under his suit, he's just hiding it so that no one can see it. So he fires the prop pistol and the start pistol at the same time. And it breaks the scene completely. As he hadn't figured this one out, being a bit tipsy, but everyone just sees a cloud of dense black smoke coming from Onegin's backside. And this tragical play, because it's quite tragical, well, uh, just was a bit ruined. And another event, which happened with the previously mentioned Uldis Pootsit in the same youth theater, in the show Pears Gins. Uh it's made after the Ibsen's play. This case clearly shows not only the effects of alcohol, but also the genius reaction of a phenomenal actor. The scene was with the mother of Per, Oze, she was dying. She just died in the scene, to be exact, and the audience are crying and are very emotionally touched, and it's very sad there. And there's a change between the set and there. Artistically made, of course. See, the next one, the next scene, is the famous Mountain King one, and the personnel 
are actively working while the lights are dimming and the actors are just, you know, standing there. And while this happens, Pootsitis, who again plays the lead role, is holding his hand on the bed, you know, with Oza and everything, with his fingers around the top edge of this wooden bed. And obviously, due to weird circumstances, his fingers get basically crushed as the personnel smacks the other bed in the scene against the one that he's leaning on. A very massively loud, Yop you might is being heard in the theater. Now, I could translate it literally, but it's used much like bloody fuck, except it's actually even ruder, and involves mothers and sexual activities. Now, this could be over right now as a tragicomical event, but it actually had a conclusion and showed that Pootsitis was truly a great actor. You see, just after that, Pootsitis, and it's like just two seconds after that, states, just as if it was scripted, <clears throat> quote, This is uh, what a Russian sailor that I have uh, the luck to know would say. But all I can do is quietly cry. And, you know, the show was saved. Kinda. Another interesting case from the Daele Theater. In the early 80s, a play about Lenin was produced there. The name of the play was Blue Horses in a Red Meadow. Lenin was played by one of the most influential Latvian actors of the time, Eduard Spavels. According to the plot, Lenin is in this play visited by his personal doctor, played by certain Valentin Skulme. But Mr. Skulme, at this point, is completely wasted. And as he walks on the stage, instead of acting according to his script, as soon as he sees Pavels, instead of addressing him in character as he should have, he just yells, Eide! Hey dude! What the hell are you doing here? So Pavels had to quickly improvise. Using the fact that he plays Lenin in this play, he goes to this schoolman, and while violently dragging him from the stage with his arms and legs like, like flailing around the place, uh, Edward Spavels declares in character, "We the true Bolsheviks won't fall for your left Assyrian and Trotskyist provocations," which again just shows that Soviet people just had to innovate everywhere, including while playing theater while being utterly drunk. Now, these are all fun stories and um, quite humorous and maybe maybe mistaken for anecdotes, but the reality was um, a bit more tragic than that, actually. But you know this show if you've listened so far. See, one of the more important Soviet cultural events was the traditional celebration concert dedicated to the October Revolution. It always happened in the 7th of November. We have explained this, as that's because of the calendar differences in the Christmas episode, which you should give a listen if you haven't already. But basically, these were the main concerts of the year, they they were super, super important. They happened of every capital city of every republic, and by republics I mean, you know, just like states in the United States, or, or Bundesrepublik in Germany. Dad used to play in those, and they were politically important as well. And everything had to be super perfect. Even the orchestra musicians were only allowed to visit the bathroom in the presence of an accompanying KGB member. Because all the party elites, you know, they they had to visit these concerts, it was mandatory. And that was the prime celebration of the communist cause. The gala event which shows how great the communist culture is. And obviously, everyone was super stressed about various possibilities for aired public dissent, or even worse acts of terrorism, and assassination attempts. But, even in these concerts, there were problematic and funny events caused by alcohol abuse. 
that just shows how much that was ingrained with the art in the Soviet Union. Now, one of the weird and uh, quite sad examples of this. Late 70s. Latvian National Opera. This concert of revolution. One of the numbers of the show is a dance suit that begins and ends with the same music played as a phonogram. The intro music ends, the dancers continue to perform with the music being played for the intermediary parts by the orchestra, and after that, everything just falls silent for a bit, waiting for the record to play again. But this time, in this very important concert, instead of the music, the sound director's window, that is in the Latvian opera, Latvian national opera, located on the very top of the hall, now that one pops open. And from there, a completely drunk sound director leans halfway out and while waving his hands around loudly announces to everyone in the concert. <clears throat> Quote, uh, hey guys, you know, there there just won't be any music, I, I messed up, I'm, I'm drunk guys, you guys, sorry. And shuts it off. This in the Revolution concert. Now the weird part is, and quite a bit sad one, that um, the sound guy himself really got off easily. It was written off as a suddenly appearing temporal mental illness. And he was assigned to one of the famous famous asylums of Andropov. To therapy. For a few months. You know. You would expect him being fired. But what was the point? It was Soviet Union, and sound directors weren't very widespread, so even though he was wasted, he just could have gone and found work at a random different theater. Also, if, it would be, if he would be fired, then it would be, look really, really bad for the political leaders of our republic. They would look bad in the eyes of Moscow. And for starters, even the difference between the pay in Latvian National Opera and other theaters, it was the same. So it didn't really matter just to fire this guy, which was a rare profession in these days. But about the political responsibility, you see, this event, it could be interpreted as giving in to political provocations. And due to the weird collective responsibility under which all the higher-ups were held responsible for every event, even a random drunk sound engineer could just cause their collective responsibility to trigger. Because even the guys who are just completely above everything and are in the board of directors they would still be accountable, just as in the army, you know, if a private does something in your in your regiment, the colonel is the one who takes all the blame. Now, this would mean that the poor drunk guy would actually be punished less than the higher-ups. You see, they could not only be fired, they could also just be thrown out of the party. They could lose status, and unlike the sound engineer guy, they would not be hired again, as, well, to be honest, being completely loyal was quite much their only actual skill. Also, this just couldn't be formulated as it really was, as that would show that not everyone is completely dedicated to the socialist cause. For the party leaders, it was unthinkable to publicly state that someone could disrespect this amazing revolutionary concert so much as to just get completely wasted. (laughs) Everything was politicized to the extreme. In Stalin's era, yeah, then he would just be shot. But these were the late 70s, where such purges were deemed terrible and publicly denounced. So, what was left were these good old school, nice, 
Psychological therapies. Yeah. Soviet Union was a land truly full of paradoxes. Another alcohol-related fact that would be utterly impossible in any Western orchestra is a string instrument-related one. You see, some of the violin and cello players had made so-called light or alcohol instruments for themselves. It worked like this. In the morning shows, which were meant for children, where music was fun and easy and you could slack off a bit, they used cheap, modified, mass-produced violins and other instruments in which they had put plastic bottles in. So when they played, they just used a rubber straw to take sips of vodka or brandy or whatever from their instruments. Because what is a children's play anyways? It went mostly unnoticed or ignored for the most part, but if the children's play was a long one, then sometimes, with more than one intermission, there were cases when after the play, the violinists would just be found asleep in their chairs and the orchestra management would just have to pull them out quietly and attempt to get them home. Then again, truth to be told, sometimes the alcohol-induced artistic additions, so to speak, to the shows were audience-caused as well. For one, in the mid-70s, in, again, opera, the Rossini's opera The Barber of Seville was being played. Now, during, during the show, the conductor suddenly noticed that the alt players weren't looking at him, but that they were staring much higher, somewhere in the second balcony. To explain the situation, what needs to be mentioned is that uh, this was an old show and nobody was up there. The audience was only in the main hall. So the conductor, following the gaze of the musicians, looks backwards and, well, freezes. While he's turned to face the audience. He continues to conduct, but he's super confused. And he had a valid reason to be. Just as everyone else in the orchestra just seems to follow him. A drunk couple, using lack of audience, have decided that this musical break and the soft seats in the opera are a nice place to have some nice sexual pleasures up there. The legs of the lady could be seen over the edge of the balcony and were rhythmically moving. Now, this was sometimes also enhanced by thematic sounds. At one point, the people in the hall just continued to cheer them on. (laughs) Now, how the musicians managed to play the scene through, my source did not report. The connoisseurs of music and sexual activities were visited in intermission, though, so this sort of stopped, but interesting nonetheless. Now, as we have noticed, most of the weird events in the theater happened when a special sound effect was played, like the shot in the first story I told you. And even if everyone involved was completely sober, you just couldn't be completely sure that everything will work out right, as technical glitches were always possible. If Booze, however, was involved, then everyone was just ready for massive surprises. Let's quickly return to our previously mentioned Yevgeny Onegin. A different, bit later show this time, but once again, a different scene of the duel. This time, they had learned, and they had decided, the theater that is, that the attempt to improve the sound was an excellent one, except, you know, the smoke from the behind and, and such. So in this version, the start pistol was being fired by an aide behind the scenes. And everything was technically should be fixed, right? 
Everything was supposed to be right and nice. Well, not really. Welcome to the Soviet Union. In this show, the person who was supposed to do this to fire the start pistol was terribly drunk and had forgotten to load up his magazine of blanks into this pistol. Because back then, they were just real pistols just firing blanks. So the duel happens, Onegin fires with his prop, but there is no sound in the background. Lensky, however, just as scripted, falls to the ground as if he's dead, you know. The script then officially states that the following dialogue must take place after this. Killed? Asks Onegin. Killed, the second replies. Here's the second for the duel, that is. But this time, everyone's panicking, as usual, but as they wanted to avoid the complete comicality of the scene, the second, after being the question, just says, uh, and dramatically, almost singing states, <clears throat> a heart attack. And this, ladies and gentlemen, about wraps up our art part. Now, I would like to introduce you to our info part, which is going to ha- happen next, but just before that, before uh, I give the microphone to Alice for a moment, I would like to ask you if you have any questions or anything of interest that you would like to hear on this show answered, please send us a mail at theeasternborder at gmail.com as we shall be answering listener questions soon. We have gathered quite a bit of them. And you know what? In response to one of them, I think we actually might dedicate a whole episode to Russian organized crime even. But yeah. Before you do anything else, and if you don't like the info part for some reason, or or you just have something you want to tell us or ask us, yeah, this is the right time again of the year to start sending in your questions, as we shall be answering those. And now, here's Alice with the info part. Hi, this is Alice. So, we got married, and as Kristap said, that makes this episode a bit sporadic, but fun nonetheless. Also, we have quite a few things piled up in the info section that we want to tell you. Firstly, this month's Dark Myths featured podcast is Inward Empire, produced by our friend Sam Davis. He tries to answer American identity questions and does a really good job at that. Oh, and as a secret, we collaborated on an episode, which is coming out sometime in the future that would also be published here, about national heroes, comparing USA and USSR, and so on. Go check them out to know what's going on when that'll arrive. Secondly, we now have t-shirts. Click the banner on our website to get them. They're produced and shipped from USA, so easier for you Westerners. They cost $24 a piece, but if you enter the word BORDER at checkout, you'll get a 10% discount that will apply to your whole purchase. And that's important, as the company that makes them is owned and run by another Dark Myths fellow, Rob from the Baddest Ass podcast, and the site contains a slew of fun historical shirts. Thirdly, we will be having some ads on the show. We've signed a deal with Acast, so they'll be entering some advertisements on our shows. Those ads will come and go and be varied and might not be there all the time, and we're sorry for that if it bothers you, but this is our day job, and we calculate that it might get us some extra money that we don't have to ask from you, but instead can take from the wealthy capitalists of the betterment for our motherland. We won't record them and they won't be permanent and run in campaigns and will also be auto-inserted into the show. We won't even be able to hear them as they're location-based and there are no campaigns in Latvia. So don't worry, they won't have any control over us since we don't even know what ads they'll run. Of course, we also give our deep, 
deep thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. And if you too want to become a patron, visit patreon.com slash the eastern border or click the sign up button on our Facebook page where we post updates. That page can be found in our homepage or just by searching the eastern border on Facebook. We have a Twitter for those who still don't follow us, at eastern underscore border, where we post regular updates. Because we love feedback, and we like to talk to you, so write us up! And don't forget to visit our homepage, theeasternborder.lv, to post comments there and for our t-shirt link. And finally, we want to do some good to the world. You see, before marriage, Chrisips went to good old friend of his, and it turned out that he'll turn blind eventually, and instead of panicking... He's made a charity that we got asked to promote, and we feel obliged to, and really want to, as people with vision impairments benefit the most from our shows, and we are proud to be helping them out. So this is what they sent us. Eyesight Stories is a non-profit organization created with the aim to provide support and information for vision, for vision impaired and blind people. We have created a YouTube channel and a website where people with eyesight problems share their personal experience providing both emotional support and practical advice for those who face these issues. When we interview vision-impaired people, they frequently mention understandable information and personal approach. They frequently mention understandable information and personal approach as two very important factors. Our hope is that the stories we'll share will uncover options they didn't know existed and give them strength to face their challenges. Our project began in Eastern Europe, in Latvia, but our aim is to gather information from around the whole world and make it available to everyone. We would like to provide professional voiceovers in English and other languages as well, so that the information and stories would be understood everywhere. The project could ultimately become a support platform for people in immediate need of help, for example, medical operations and other critical cases. Vision-impaired people will participate in our project as employees to help with many of the tasks needed to achieve these goals. The project was started by two Latvian guys, and we have carried it this far on our own, despite our financial limitations. But to reach out further and make this dream happen, we need your help. Thanks to your involvement, we will be able to make this world easier to access for vision-impaired people and give them the possibility to voice their needs and to better integrate into society. To support us, please visit our Indiegogo generosity page. The link will be in the show notes. Every bit of support will help us make the world better for those in need together. And now, back to the show. And thank you for being there with us. And welcome back to the show, comrades. Now, as you know, lately, second parts of our show have been a bit um, different, so to speak, and and this time will not be an exception, because um, I follow the Russian press quite closely, and I found a really interesting article on the Russian internets on the site Tsreu, tsreu tsreu.ru. It's somewhat of an independent, kind of humoristic Russian site, but... It answers a lot of my questions, and this article answers a lot of my questions, a lot of your questions about Soviet Union, Eastern Border, and modern-day Russia. It's um, one of these interesting articles which I wanted to include in some episode, but I really couldn't find where to put it. But I guess this, this will do. And it's an article which is about 25 phrases, which, if I would state them 25 years ago, would cause 
as the bare minimum some sort of weird looks or or some doubts from everyone around me over here in these parts and they would just just make make people think if i'm sane even it's an article kind of depicting how life has changed in modern day russia and it's all about russia essentially how life has shifted around how russia has changed in these 25 years explained in 25 sentences basically and what i want to do for the second part is a bit interesting i will look take a look at this article and i will take a look at these phrases and we'll just go through them and maybe that'll give you some social commentary about what's different in modern day russia and in soviet union and how everything works out now this is not a brand new article it's been it's been sitting on my to-do list for a while it's from 2013 i suppose things haven't really changed that much from that period of time i think it's just that a lot of people have asked me to talk about post soviet russia a bit more and about how things were in the early 90s and i will get to the early 90s at one point as well just um again really sorry for all this month being full with wedding and other difficulties but I think that this might be a great insight for you, at least. So let's start. 25 phrases which would sound really weird 25 years ago in Russia. Uh, I will start, by the way, by reading the uh, phrase in Russian and then translating it to English. So that all of our Russian-speaking listeners can understand it maybe a bit more clearly. Because I know that we have some by now. Oh, hi, Mr. Putin. <clears throat> Number one. me 25 rubles on metro. That is, give me 25 rubles for a metro. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. For Metro Ticket, that's me. Now, this will come come uh, as a surprise and a sh- shocking surprise to you, maybe, but Ruble has devaluated insanely. And this will come on further on but ruble used to be quite expensive like i said the average salary for an engineer was 120 rubles ruble used to be way more expensive than a dollar right now ruble is 15 american cents that's about 10 euro cents i presume that's a ruble so 25 rubles for a metro could be about i don't know three four dollars approximately it's kind of interesting how the man money devaluated because 
the Russians took a quite different approach than we we here in the Baltics. Well, at least in Latvia and Estonia, Lithuanians got it a bit harsher, but uh, whereas Russians took their ruble and devalued it and made it very cheap, over here our lat, before we shifted to euro, was uh, quite an quite, uh, expensive money. It was very valuable. And also a lot of people kind of blamed this not devaluation of lat as a reason for our economical situation now. Now the second sentence. Yeah, that's the second sentence is quite quite simple. Sfotografiruj mnie na telefon. That is, take a picture with me uh, on your phone. Now this is pretty self-explanatory because we just didn't have smartphones back then. But it would be extra weird seeing that even a phone, a mere phone, was um, was luxury in itself. Now the third one. The third one goes for the gamers out there. <clears throat> That is, I went through the Second World War for the Germans. That is apparently referencing a video game here. Or World of Tanks, or I don't know. I, I don't know if you can play uh, as the German forces in Call of Duty. But yeah. And that's weird in multiple senses in these areas. For one, even thinking that you could learn about the German forces, that you could learn about... All the facts without the propaganda was strange, as even what the other Western powers did in World War II was quite oppressed and put down. And yeah, another future forwarding something. We shall be looking at World War II at one point, but this seems strange right now if you think about it, that we just didn't have computer games at all. They came much, much later here. We're kind of lagging behind these parts. And when I read on the internet or just watch YouTube videos about Atari 2600 or other old school consoles, it just seems so weird because I got my first Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES for short, or Famicom if you are from Japan. Um, I got it in 1987 where you guys were already playing with Playstations and we got Playstations way later. And while I'm at it... I'm, again, sorry, but the second part is much less organized than the first one, but I know that I have some Japanese listeners, and which my first thing is that I studied Japanese for six years, because I was lucky enough to take a while and study in the Latvian school that was the Japanese culture and language school here. So uh, I speak a bit of Japanese, I've forgotten most of it, but I can read and, I can read and write hiragana and katakana, but, but that's about it. We we had quite a lot of cooperation with the consulate and all these things. So, actually I got a Famicom, really, because of my school, because that was when I started to, to go to go to school back then. But yeah, it's it's really interesting, because for me, it was always this, this Famicom thing, but most of us were just called NES. And yeah, this, this has also changed, because right now, <laughs> computer games, specifically in computers, make a large part of everything, but... When you think about it, yeah, going through the World War Two for the Germans, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't imagine that a while ago. Another fourth one. That is, do you need a a passport valid for foreign travel to go to Ukraine? Now, this article is in 2013, so um, yes and no, I suppose. Previously, Ukraine and travel throughout the Soviet Union itself was very widespread and popular. It was hard to go to foreign lands, and if you lived in Kolkhoz up to 1980, when you didn't have a passport and couldn't leave your village, 
But there were tourism trips available, and people traveled throughout the Soviet Union quite freely. Much more freely, in fact, than uh, to foreign countries. Even though it's surprising, as the Soviet Union was very, very large, but these tourism trips were very popular, and the same reason why the art was so much sponsored, because that kind of showed that we have this culture and we have everything. So if you lived in the city and you had a semi-decent job, you could just go and take your trip to, I don't know, Armenia or, or Georgia or, or Kazakhstan. And that was a pretty normal thing and you didn't you didn't need a separate passport that's like traveling between the states in modern day USA, I, I presume. I presume at least. But Ukraine is special in this case because this article is written before the the conflicts there and before the Crimean annexation and all these terrible things. But I suppose, yeah, now you need this. Because apparently Russia still does these things. They have two kinds of passports. Over here in Latvia, we, we don't. And uh, all over the EU, we just use the Schengen zone kind of freely. Number five. That is, kids' clothing is costing more than the one for adults. Again, interesting, because all the clothing used to cost about the same in the Soviet Union, but kids' clothing was just cheaper, because it was smaller. We didn't have all these brands, and we're coming back to everyday life, but one of the major differences, again, that people asked about, and we've looked at at previous episodes, was that we didn't have any brands. We had uh, Soviet-style socks. Per one, maybe two. Not, Not much more, really. It was all about getting something from your state-approved factory. And now we get all these weird brands, and there are like H&Ms in Latvia, and Kubus, and Hugo Boss, and weird stuff. And I can't afford to buy stuff in them, but except H&M, that's a pretty good one. But we were not used to brand clothing, and it's somewhat of a luxury, actually, to, to get stuff from those those things. And seems now it seems kind of weird that we have all this weird choice. Especially in clothing. And another interesting fact is that Latvia apparently has one of the more ex- more expensive clothing in the whole European Union. I mean, if you live in Britain, and my little brother used to live in Britain for a year, he bought most of his clothing that he wears there instead of Latvia, because not just in relative prices, you know, cost of clothing when compared to cost of when compared to salaries and such. But in just objective numbers, you guys in UK have just cheaper clothing than we have here. Your sweaters and pants are about 20% cheaper than we buy here with a with smaller amount that we receive in salaries. And that also is interesting. And yeah, kids' clothing really does cost way more than the adult clothing here. Number six. That is, in our school... The Orthodox lessons have been have been established. Orthodox lessons would mean uh, Christian Christian studies, I presume, teaching you how to be a proper Orthodox believer. Right now in Russia, it's kind of the opposite of what it was like in the Soviet era. I mean, in Soviet era it was state atheism, but right now there are laws, as I have mentioned in previous episodes. Again, I'm sorry, I just don't remember everything that's going on back then. But there are laws which prohibit people from insulting the opinions of the believers. And, you know, that that sounds kind of nice. You shouldn't be offensive to people and, and say bad things about anyone. But the government, of course, uses it for um, 
weird things, such as a person was a kid was arrested in a church in Russia very recently for basically playing Pokemon Go there. He was just trying to catch Pokemon in a church, and he was arrested and fined. And that can, that can be taken to extremes. But it was unthinkable for a Soviet man to even talk about about religious religious things in public. Number seven. Завтра я куплю тебе память. Tomorrow I'll buy you a memory. And it's uh, and this statement talks about the SD microchip card. We call all the HDD spots a memory here, mostly. Or it could be RAM or something, but it's most likely referring to SD cards and some sort of storage space. Again, comes back to computers, won't spend too much time on it, but uh, another interesting fact is that when the Soviets finally did acquire their own clones of foreign computers, uh, I remember there being Amiga in 1981 and ZX Spectrum, then yeah, the Soviet clones actually got better than the original. And the originals, and, and this is where the famous Russian <laughs> Russian hackers were born. Okay, so number eight. Меня рука замедла с тобой разговаривать. My hand is frozen while I'm speaking with you. Basically, I can't speak with you, my, my hand's being frozen. Again, this one's about smartphones, but it's kind of an in-joke about our cold weather. Oh man, I think I'm going to skip over just some of them, and this, this is one of those weird things out there. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe it's kind of interesting to look back about how our life has changed. Huh. Yeah, number nine, by the way, is one of the more more interesting and weird things around that, and very very Soviet and unlike unlike mowing moping over the previous how we have smartphones and computers now. В этом мороженом есть пальмовое масло. That is, does this ice cream contain palm oil? This is important because Soviet Union only used natural things for everything. Either everything was pure chemistry. Like pure, and by chemistry I mean artificial colorings and, and additives and everything. Either it was completely pure and natural because these whole preservatives were extremely expensive. Therefore, our ice creams were natural and, you know, most of the foods could be called organic even. As the Soviets in mass production only used very natural elements. We didn't even have margarine, I think, uh, that, that butter replacer. Margarine? I, I hope it's margarine. We didn't even have that for a while. It was just uh, pure butter, because everything was more natural back then, and right now people are just quite scared of palm oil and all the other artificial sugars, as we call them. We don't also use cane sugar here, we're all from sugar beets, as those grow in our, our climate. And yeah, I don't even know if I have tried this uh, cane sugar going on there. Number 10. Pashitani Telefonia. Uh, count it on your phone. Yeah, yeah, another one about smartphones. I'm getting kind of tired here. Uh, I, I read it and, wow, there were quite a few interesting ones, but I don't even know. The most interesting part about smart part about smartphones here is that the Russians kind of invented their own smartphone with two screens. One was on the back and black and white. But it didn't really sell well and they got into trouble when it, when it uh, turned out that they had stolen a patent from someone. We Latvians don't have our own smartphone, sadly. Well, maybe now. Maybe we'll get it one day, but uh, definitely not for now. Number 11. Мы платим за квартиру 6000 рублей за месяц. We're paying uh, 6000 rubles per month for our apartment. Again, ruble is 15 cents, 15 American cents. So 6000 rubles, 
is uh, quite a lot, I suppose. Quite a lot for all of these things. I, I bet it's even more expensive in Moscow. Because the rent costs there are immensely high. But yeah, the rent and the pricing is really varied all over the, all over the places. I mean, are you people in the West, what I pay for uh, my apartment, what I live with Alice over here, 210 euros per month seems extremely cheap, but it's actually not. Not for us here in Latvia, even though even in, in Moscow, the prices go up uh, very high. But yeah, Moscow basically is quite different from everywhere else, everywhere else in Russia. It's actually more of a, I don't know, minority city, so to speak. Uh, the Ethnic Russians are a minority in Moscow by this point. It's all either foreign investors or... Uh, or just immigrant workers from all over, all over the place, and that that worries a lot of people. And Moscow is treated as a, basically a state within a state uh, all around Russia by the common people lately. So six thousand rubles per month, I guess you'd be paying triple that in Moscow, because that's one of the most expensive cities to live in, and one of the more prestigious one too. Number twelve, uh, television teaches kids to swear. Now, this might be, I think, a common occurrence in media all over the place. I mean, over here in Latvia, you can swear on the television and public media after a certain time. After 9 o'clock, I presume. 9 p.m., that is. But in Soviet era, television was very, very prudent. Very, very puritanistic, so to speak. Everything had to be very nice. There was no bad things on television. and Everything was just shiny, happy, goodness and kindness and niceness. So the idea that you could see some some terrible violence on the television and that crimes would be discussed but that people actually swear on television was so completely alien that all the older generation that still lives here and have been through all more of the Soviet Union than I have they're very confused about the fact that how how can you show all these weird things on television? Even though they're more relaxed when it comes to theater or, or other forms of media, but television is somehow somehow important, really, because they just are sometimes even scared and repulsed by what's what's going on in the, in the Western media. And that's one of our main differences here, because we expect our television to, to kind of be be somewhat fruit after a certain certain time, but uh, yeah, swearing and, and excessive violence are considered scary. By the way, uh, kissing and uh, some sort of uh, sexual activities on the TV, kind of er- erotics things, those are kind of more normal, I suppose. But yeah, violence in television is a major issue here, and the fact that uh, there is a lot of swearing there, now that's... That's considered uh, terrible. By the way, radio is an exception to this, because you told the Armenian radio jokes and everything, and people were used to radio being some sort of more of a more blatant, so to speak, more uh, straight to the point, more coarse form of discussion. That is why I'm I'm not getting bashed for uh, being a bit rude in my shows, just because it is how it is. You can't really talk about the Soviet Union in uh, G-rated terms. Number thirteen. Call me when you'll move, when, when you'll go to the forest. Again, cell phones. Interesting part is that when the cell phones first appeared here, it was about 1984, 1985. They cost about 500 lats, which would be 700 euros. And there were these old ones like Nokia 21 and 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 those Siemens brick type of phones. And I read these newspapers from the era with the commer- commercials while researching for 
an upcoming episode, and I was just surprised how how the prices for technology have went down. And again, this would be unthinkable for the Soviet person. Number 14. I can't enter the post. Pochta is an all-rounder all term for both postal service and mail and email and everything. It just, just works that way. But, yeah, another one about computers. See, some of these are not very good, in them, but, but still, they're very informative here because our thinking has changed a lot. And all this email thing and when you can't enter this because of wrong passwords and passwords changing, that actually got a lot, got a lot of flack in the latest elections in Russia because... Apparently, Putin won, obviously, by getting an absolute majority in uh, Gosduma. But this time, uh, some electronic shenanigans had been going going down, and apparently, apparently, some people had voted through email, even though that's not legal, and some uh, local newspapers had reported that, and then everyone was stunned about, hey, uh, how can you vote through email if that's not even possible or legal, and then the local media had to actually close down the story. Which went down as a pretty... Not another one, like... Which went down as another of these... Uh, they didn't even try hard enough stories. Number 15, and uh, this might be a bit offensive. Militia приезжайте скорее в нашем магазине женщины кавказской национальности забила пакет. Oh boy. This is a sort of a quote. Militia, militia, please arrive faster. In our store... A woman who, a woman from Caucasus, by Caucasian nationality, in this quote, uh, the people mean Armenians, Georgians, Azerbaijanis, Uzbekistanis, and, and the like. Oh, not Uzbekistanis, I'm, I'm sorry. But yeah, basically, someone of these these nations, they, they forgot back. Now, the problem here is, there's a slight racism there in modern-day Russia. It was, it was kind of ever-present, even in the Soviet era, but there was this uh, statement, like, an all-catching term, uh, which said Litsa Kavkaska nationality, basically a face of Cauca- face of Caucasian nationality, which is an offensive term, because there were a lot of stereotypes about people from the Caucasus Mountains and all those uh, all those people who lived there, as they were looked at as mostly criminals, operating in the organized crime and in general being a menace to society. And you know this this feeling is kind of strong even now, as I, as I see from this internet site, especially as a lot of these people are the guys who now inhibit Moscow. And it is strange because even though Russia officially says that there is no racism going on there and that everything is cool and smooth and they even said, stated that too in the Soviet era, it wasn't quite true. We had our someone who is more equal than the others guys. In, in a way, because everything was Russif- Russified, I presume that's the word, um, everything was like Russian was the dominant culture there, and that is why try all of this enforcement of becoming Russian. That is why we are so sensitive about our languages here, and I presume in Georgia too, in Caucasus republics, because that was one of the weird things that we can enjoy now. This kind of our own country thing, and this is why Ukrainians and Belarusians vehemently state that they are not Russian. And why we over here in these parts still state that no, 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 we are from Eastern Europe and we were Soviets, but we were never Russians. As we were being put down into this melting pot without our own, own desire and of our any, without any desire of our own to be put there and without any respect to our own culture that uh, 
it's a bit of a shock, really, to know that if you would go to Russia today and you would be from Caucasus, you would still get this kind of a chauvinistic attitude towards yourself. So some things are quite depressing and don't change in the ways that we would we would like to. Number 16. По утрам бананы можно купить без очереди в любом магазине. In the mornings you can buy bananas without any queues in any store. <laughs> yeah, to understand this one, I guess you would have to listen to our Everyday Life episode, but yeah, getting bananas is still a cultural icon here. Same as queues. Even though in our stores we still have have some queues now and then, especially when you really don't understand why they have like 10 checkout point, points of which only three are working and everything else is just empty and then there are long, long queues in those. But bananas are somehow a cultural staple. It was interesting, as in 1994, in the election here in Latvia, we had a candidate named Joachim Ziegerist, which was an American Jewish person who was also a Latvian citizen, and he was a candidate, but he actually gave bananas in his rallies to make people vote for him. Because early 90s was a crazy time here, and I'll get to that in, in more detail in a future episode. But yeah, bananas were a cultural staple. If you had bananas, you were the, the you were the guy. It was kind of amazing, and we still use that as jokes. But yeah, I wonder if you'd vote for a candidate who'd try to give you bananas for your vote. Number 17. I sent you a message 15 minutes ago. Did you get it? Again, smartphone jokes, <laughs> just to not even mentioning that one. Number 18. Oh, this is an interesting one. Сливочное масло без растительных добавок. Basically, uh, whipped cream without any uh, additional additional preservers, I presume. Again, palm oil argument. But yeah, all these all these cream things and milks and everything, that was the probably the most pure thing that you could get in, in the Soviet Union. And... Uh, I was also quite surprised when, even though the, the milk bought, that could be bought in stores was pasteurized and boiled up, it was still quite common for the people in the countryside, and it still is today, to just go to your farmer neighbors and, you know, buy your milk straight from the cow, just, you know, filter it out a bit. I've, I've drunk quite a, quite a lot of such milk, and I, I haven't died yet, but I know that some people have gotten sick, but that's mostly from goat's milk, which we also, which we also consume here, but... All this idea about terrible, terrible diseases spreading everywhere due to unpasteurized milk. Hmm. Well, it's not it's not that popular over here in Latvia. Even though some people do kind of boil it up at home later, but uh, fresh milk straight from the cow is still considered somewhat of a delicacy. If you can get it and you have nice farmer friends about whom you know that they take care of their cows. Number 19. This one's again about money. Um, for 10,000 rubles per month, you can't really make a living there anymore in Russia. And that's kind of true. And the weirdest part is that all these ruble equitations mean that sometimes people actually get less than that. And uh, a lot of people have kind of called me a Russophobe lately. And I hope you understand that that is not the case. I just don't like Russian government at all. Russians as people are, well, as far as I've known, quite nice. And uh, recently... Just uh, two days ago, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the ex-president, and probably will be a president again when Putin finally steps down, the ex-president, now prime minister, visited Crimea. And apparently he had a meeting with uh, with the pensioners there, the guys who received the government pensions. And those people, 
turns out, live on about 106 euros per month. That's about 4,000 rubles, I presume. So, yeah, they, they live on, on that much per month there in Crimea, as the situation, because of all the sanctions, has really gone down and uh, is really worse in Russia than you might expect. Sure, people in Moscow and St. Petersburg live well, but the stories in our media about Russians living in poverty and actually starving are are quite common here. And <laughs> about this Crimea case, what really struck me as odd was when Dmitry Medvedev actually responded to these people who received the government pensions by stating that, oh, you know, we just um, we just don't have the money. When we'll find the money, we'll give you the everything. Now, now, um, have a great day. Be in good health and keep your spirits up. Bye. That was a direct quote that he left. Because you see, when 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 something like this happens, you usually want to scream a bit at your politicians and just uh, yell at them. Because one thing that must be understood is that all this list—it's um—it's a dark humor in a way. We have smartphones over there, over there, and in Russia, even in rural districts. But sometimes people just just don't have enough to eat because you can get these smartphones with your phone plans and pay them in parts, and you just need a smartphone for a job these days. <laughs> but yeah, situations are often. More tragic than you think. Number 20. Oh, this pastry can be saved for half a year. Yeah, this this goes back to everything being mostly organic in Soviet Union and everyone just living with what they had. And everything had these, you know, the, these best before dates. Very, very short best before dates on everything except, I don't know, canned meat, I, I, I suppose. But... The idea is that, I don't know how you do that in the Western world, but best before dates are seen as just that best before. Basically, over here we still operate on the case of, oh, if it's not, like, rotten and doesn't smell bad, yeah, we'll we'll probably eat that, or use that. Because these best before dates, they, they have about two weeks of a reserve there, well, depending on the produce, that is, but if you see your best before date just expiring this day, then that doesn't mean you can't eat the product. Essentially, um, essentially, if you guys look at look at something that who that's best before date has passed, but it looks good, yeah, you know what? Eat it. It won't kill you. <laughs> that's what we do over here, because uh, we were basically we're very skeptical of extra long expiration dates on foods, because that just means that hey, if if that's if that can stay in the shelf for so long, then that must be made from plastic, and that probably won't be won't be as good. Number twenty one. In our school, 10% of kids use drugs. Now, this is a, this is the statement why I actually picked this list, because uh, drug problems are huge in Russia. You might have seen this Vice, Vice News uh, kind of documentary about crocodile or crocodile drug, which uh, is some sort of weird semi-synthetic heroin thing, but... Addiction to drugs is a major issue around around these parts and in Russia because in Soviet Union, drugs were not known. Drugs were really a non-issue. We didn't even know what uh, marijuana was. It wasn't as popular as in as in the West with the hippies and everything. And it was like only morphine was accessible from from doctors. And even then, you know, there were stories about a KGB guy asking you, hey, do you have some morphine? And you don't know if it's a test or not, or if he really wants that. So the drugs weren't widespread, and they're widespread now. And that's a tragedy, because 
we didn't have a lot of experience with them and uh, a lot of people have really suffered greatly from using them <laughs> and the fact that even even though they're they're really dangerous to your health they're kind of abused by school children even now and then especially we had this great tragedy here with the legal marijuana which can actually get you killed so-called legal so-called marijuana it's illegal now here all these synthetic spice things whatever they're really harmful to your health and to your heart specifically and i don't really recommend you using them in any shape way or form because i've seen how people really hurt themselves and this new widespread sort of widespread availability of all sorts of chemicals that were forbidden before and well they are still forbidden now but now they're available and that's that's one of the tragedies of Eastern Europe, actually. That's one of the things which really keep our economy down, because people just want to try stuff out that they don't even know the effects of. And I, I guess I'll, I'll really, this, this could serve as an intro to my future organized crime episode. Number 22. Basically, I grinded my elf up. Well, this, this will be an easy reference to all of your World of Warcraft players, but... Yeah, same as with drugs, all sorts of fantasy things and all the geek stuff. Oh boy, that, that, that was an awkward comparison. But yeah, fantasy got really popular here. We're still huge fans of sci-fi and fantasy, and our mentality is shaped that way. But I guess this is more about computers, and yeah, didn't have any. But fantasy was always big and great, so that is why we, we love it here. And mostly turn-based strategies, for some weird reason. Number 23. I can't force my kid to walk around and play with his friends. And that's another major complaint, because uh, people, especially in the older generation, my parents' generation, often complain to me that people are just spending too much time on their computers and they're not playing outside. Now, knowing how kids used to play outside with explosives and axes and whatnot, I can sort of understand this, but... I don't know. Helicopter parenting is considered to be a very, very, very bad thing, because... If your kid doesn't run and, you know, doesn't run and get a lot of bruises around and is not physically active, that, that's considered um, a bad thing. Because, you know, you have, to be, you have to be tough to survive in these parts. So that's, that's one of the things that has changed because the younger generation over here is um, quite a bit lazy, so to speak. They don't want to partake in dangerous activities as much as they did before. Number 24. Our neighbor yesterday bought, sold his crocodile and bought a monkey. Yeah, uh, this is a story about the Novaya Rish in Russia, the so-called Novaya Ruski or the New Russians. This is about the situation that in the early 90s, a lot of, of these new rich Russian people basically used to be criminals and got very wealthy through various means, mostly very illegal, and the joke is that everyone thinks that they have no culture, which is mostly true, because they were all coming from the organized crime of the Soviet Union. Well, not all, but about 90%. There were some some, uh, some people who managed to do it otherwise, but for the very, very most part, they did. And there are typical jokes that they only calculate the value of things by how much they cost. So just one of the more interesting jokes about the so-called New Russians is that two of them are speaking and when one shows shows the other one his his new necktie and he says, oh, oh look at this, I bought it for uh, 5,000 rubles uh, and it's all with, with gold and diamonds. 
And the other one says, uh, looks at the necktie and says, ah, you know, you got, you got really screwed with that one. I saw one just like that over the corner there, and there it cost 10,000 rubles. And the idea is that they really just are considered to be the guys who, who, who still wear their, uh, Adidas pants with their, with their shoes and leather jackets and drive around in Mercedes Benz all the time and spend ludicrous amounts of money on everything. That's the weird part. Those are the very visible income inequalities here. And especially if you see that this income has come in uh, very dubious ways and that people just don't care about it. <laughs> yeah, that kind of forms your um, standard Eastern European mentality that everything is terrible. But yeah, you know, we can still read these lists and be happy. Number 25. We are too poor to send our kid uh, to a summer camp. You see, it's kind of interesting, because summer camps used to be for free and mandatory, same as happiness in the Soviet Union. Everyone sent their kids to summer camps. Everyone just went to summer camps, government-organized ones, where they were nicely politically indoctrinated and all the nice things were just taught to them. You know, all the stuff that I talk about in the childhood episode. But right now, the summer camps are really expensive, and when you compare it to the 24th point about the new Russians and crazy pets, yeah kind of makes you think because one of the forming factors that we can we can kind of understand from looking at all of these is that things are a bit worse but we sort of have our freedom and things are kind of moving upward in the quality of life i suppose but at the same time it was a tough process it was really hard to get through the soviet union and it was kind of one of our one of our big defining moments, at least for my generation it was, because I read an article on the New York Times recently which stated that the millennials haven't had their dreams crushed so they're very optimistic and very naive about the world, but over here, in our, even our millennials, they have still lived through the early 90s and they mostly grew up in, in not very rich families, like I'd say even poor families. So I guess it's a bit different here. Such lists, such weirdnesses, such paradoxes still continue to define us to this day and and that is why I'm very happy that I'm able to make this podcast and share this with you, because at the end it's all about all about telling you the story of my people. Yeah, well, that's about it for today. In the next episode we shall be interviewing a Lithuanian uh, histor- historian, Lithuanian Soviet historian, an academical one. That, or depending on the date of the interview, which is not set in stone yet, we shall be doing one about the organized crime in Soviet Union and Russia. See you next time. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.